great to uh, just worship God together in those songs, isn't it? And in those readings that we've uh, read and prayers and fantastic just to be able to come together and do that this morning. The last words that people say before they die are fascinating and they can be hugely significant and important. General Sedgwick of the US Army said this in 1864 during the US Civil War. These were his last words immediately before he died. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet's last words were, I've had 18 straight whiskies. I think that's the record. After 39 years, this is all I've done. Winston Churchill's last words before he died were, I'm bored with it all. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, clutched his chest and turned to his wife and said, you are wonderful. And then he died. That's the kind of level we've got to meet up to, guys, when we die. Remember that? And William Tyndale, who was executed by strangulation before being burned at the stake uh, because he translated the Bible into English, he prayed these words. These were his last words. They were a prayer in the seconds before he died. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And his prayer was answered because the following year, Henry VIII allowed Tyndale's translation of the Bible uh, to be published in England and Wales and to be made available for people to read. The last words that people say before they die can be hugely significant and important. And this morning I want to focus on the very last words of Jesus before he died. Because of all the last words uttered by any human being that has ever lived, Jesus' last words are and continue to be the most significant last words ever uttered on this planet. In fact, all of Jesus' words are the most significant words ever uttered. But these last words of Jesus are the most significant last words. Usually when a person's about to die, they are very weak and their last words are often spoken you know, quietly and in weakness. But Jesus' last words were not just spoken clearly and loudly, they were actually shouted out. And they were heard by all of those who were there around the cross as Jesus died. His last words were three simple words. It is finished. It is finished. And the Bible says that after he'd shouted these three words, he gave up his spirit and died. And these weren't the words of a dying man. Jesus wasn't slowly dying, his kind of life ebbing away. He said this concerning his own life in John 10, 18. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. So when Jesus died on the cross, it was because he was laying down his life. It was a decision he made to die. Nobody took his life from him. And even right up to that last minute, Jesus was in control. Jesus was in charge. In fact, the soldiers who were around the cross were expecting him to live for much longer. Crucifixion victims usually did. And when they came to break Jesus' legs to kind of hurry up the process of crucifixion, as they did with the, the two thieves, the two criminals either side of him, they were surprised to find that Jesus was already dead. He'd already died because he'd made the decision the choice to die. Jesus was in full control right the way through his own crucifixion. And he gave up his life when he knew that he'd finished what he'd come to do. And knowing that his mission was complete, he cried out in a loud voice for everybody to hear around the cross, it is finished. You know, as people, we often struggle to know, don't we, what our, our kind of purpose in life is. We sometimes get down and a bit depressed because we're not sure what we're achieving in life. 
But Jesus didn't have any kind of such self-doubts or issues. He came from heaven to earth knowing why he was here and he knew what he was here to do. And his whole life was lived with the goal, his mission, his purpose in sight. Everything was about that for Jesus. He knew what he was doing. His miracles were amazing. His teaching was revolutionary. His lifestyle has, last, has left a lasting legacy, but he came to do something way much more important than any of those things, as good as they are. Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And he lived all of his life knowing that he would one day die on the cross. For over 30 years, he'd lived with that one goal in sight that he would go to the cross and lay down his life for you and for me. And now having hung on the cross for six hours in horrendous agony and pain, physically horrendous agony and pain, there was nothing left to do. His work was done. So he cried out, it is finished. What exactly did he mean when he spoke those words? He didn't say, I I'm finished. I've got, I've got nothing left. I'm, I'm dying. He said, it is finished. So what was Jesus saying? What was the real significance of these words as Jesus cried out, it is finished? Well, let's read one of the accounts of Jesus' death in the Bible. We're going to read John 19, 28 to 42. And the John who wrote this was an eyewitness. He was stood there at the foot of the cross with Jesus' A human mother, Mary, and John witnessed this. He was an eyewitness. And so these are his This is his recollection of what Jesus said and of what happened. So we're going to read John 19, and we're going to read from um, verses 28 to 42. So if you've got a Bible handy, you want to turn with me, uh, or you can just listen as I read it to you, whatever you're comfortable doing. So John 19, verse 28 to the end of the chapter. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. This is John writing. He knows, speaking about himself, he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. An amazing account of the most amazing event in history 
Verses 28 to 31 tell us this. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There are actually two statements here Jesus makes. Firstly, I am thirsty, and secondly, it is finished. The first one, I'm thirsty, is all about Jesus' humanity. Jesus' suffering on the cross was absolutely real. He was, a, he was a real man suffering terrible agony. The beating was real. The nails in his hands and his feet were real. The crown of thorns in his head, absolutely real. In fact, it was horrendous. But the physical pain and, and, and suffering was unbelievably awful. But what was the second statement all about? It is finished. It is finished. What is that about? Well, to understand, let me take you to a market. It's busy, it's bustling, and people are selling all kinds of things. It's not Paddy's Market down on the quayside on a Sunday morning, but this is instead a, a market somewhere in the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And on making your purchase, you ask for a receipt for what you've bought. And on a piece of paper, or rather probably papyrus, the, the market trader stamps the Greek word tetelestai, stamped on your receipt. And tetelestai means paid in full. And our New Testament of the Bible, which includes the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, were originally written in Greek. The Greek language was the universal language of the day. So when Jesus proclaims his last three words, it is finished from the cross, that's the English version. It's just one word in the original Greek. And it's this Greek word, tetelestai, paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus was declaring that he had paid for something and that he paid for it in full. What did he pay for? Well, you know, if you have children, and I'm sure that, I'm sure Seth being the angel he is, this will rarely happen, but occasionally you might have to discipline your children. A price has to be paid, doesn't it, when something is done that is wrong. And the same is true in society. Justice is the exercise of someone paying a price for the wrongs that they've committed. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for your sin and for my sin. See, all the wrongs that we've ever done, they separate us from God. But God loves us, and he wants to be in a real and life-transforming relationship with us. To have a relationship with God is to fulfill the purpose for which we were made. But by our sin, the wrong things that we do, the things that we say and think, those things have put a barrier between us and God. Our sin is the barrier between us and God. Our sins are like a great chasm or a, kind of like a you know, big concrete or a big brick wall between us and God. Because Jesus paid the price in full there on the cross, it's now possible for each one of us to cross over the chasm and to begin an amazing relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. Because he's paid the, the price in full, the barrier that separates us can now be removed. The wall can be knocked down, the, the chasm can be bridged, however you want to describe it. So how is this possible? Well, what did Jesus do on the cross that makes this possible for us? The Bible says this, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that in Christ we could become right with God. When Jesus was there on the cross for three hours, there was darkness. At midday, when the sun should have been shining at its brightest, suddenly there was a supernatural darkness came over the whole land for three hours from midday until three in the afternoon. But this wasn't an eclipse of the sun, and you can find that out scientifically. This wasn't an eclipse of the sun. This was a supernatural event. There was darkness because Jesus had become sin and God is angry with our sin. And so there was darkness over the whole land. 
And during those three hours of darkness, because he loved you and because he loved me, Jesus became your sin and became my sin. He took the punishment from God the Father for your sins and for my sins. That's why it was dark. For all our failures, for all our greed, for all our lusts, all our harsh words, all our gossip, all our slander, all our deceit, Jesus hung on the cross and soaked up the wrath of our holy God that you deserve, that I deserve. Yes, the trial was an injustice, the flogging was brutal, the, the, the thorns, the crown of thorns were agony, the physical punishment of, of crucifixion was appalling. It's the most barbaric way a human being could ever invent of killing another human being. And it's telling, isn't it, that Jesus took the most barbaric form of death possible. But the significance of the cross is not in the nails or in the crown of thorns. The significance of the cross is what happens during those three hours of darkness. When Jesus took, when Jesus not only took, but became your sin and became my sin, the one who'd never sinned, who couldn't imagine what it was like to be a sinner, actually became the very thing that he despised the most. He became your sin. He became my sin. And God the Father poured out the punishment that you and I deserved upon the son that he loved, the son he'd always been in eternal relationship with. Jesus' love for you and I was so great that he willingly and voluntarily died in our place, so that by trusting in him, by giving our lives to him, by confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, we could become right with God. Christ had no sin, but God became, God made him become sin, so that in Christ we could become the righteousness of God we could get right with God and after three hours of taking the punishment from a holy God on top of all the horrendous physical anguish that Jesus was experiencing the punishment from a holy God for your sins for my sins Jesus knew that he'd done what he'd come to do his job was done the task was completed the task was finished the greatest the greatest and most important moment in history had just taken place Sin had been dealt with, your sin and my sin had been dealt with once and for all. And Jesus had made it possible for people like you and for me to have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life, to have peace and have this amazing relationship with God that we were created to have. Jesus was perfect, he was sinless, and yet he became your sin, he became my sin. And in doing so, he was punished by his eternal father for those sins. And that means that today we can start life over again. We can start life completely clean, transformed, transformed by what Jesus has done. No more barrier between us and God. No more sin between us and God. It's all been taken by Jesus. And because of his death there on the cross, God offers us forgiveness and he offers us a whole new life. It's amazing, isn't it? No wonder it's called the gospel, the good news. It's amazing good news. And if it's something that you've never done to put your trust in Jesus, the one who died for you, then can I encourage you and challenge you to think about taking that step this morning to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and so receive that forgiveness, to, to, to watch that barrier come crashing down so that you can enter into an amazing relationship with God. All you have to do is step out and cross that bridge by the way of the cross to come to God through Jesus, simply about acknowledging who we are, that we've blown it, that we've, we're broken, that we're sinners. We've messed up. We've lived our way instead of God's. And to come and to thank Jesus for, for doing what we could never have done, which was to take the punishment for our sin. And then to say sorry for all those sins and ask him to please come and live in my life. Please forgive me. And to pledge ourselves to follow him for the rest of our lives. That's something you can do this morning. 
Look at these verses from Matthew 27. Matthew, one of the other four accounts of Jesus' life and, and death and resurrection. Matthew writes this, And when Jesus had cry, cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And when Matthew states that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he doesn't tell us what he said. He just tells us that he cried out in a loud voice. All he tells us about is what happened immediately after Jesus cried out. But because Matthew tells us that Jesus gave up his spirit immediately after crying out in a loud voice, we know that what he said is, it is finished. This is the same event that Matthew's talking about. This is Matthew recording the same moment that John has recorded. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and John tells us what he actually said. It is finished. So, so why when Jesus cried out in that loud voice, shouted out, it is finished, why then did the curtain in the temple there in Jerusalem, why did that get torn in two from top to the bottom? What on earth did the, the, the ripping of that curtain mean? What does it mean for us today? Well, in history, God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to dwell with us, but sin, as we said, is a barrier. And we've been looking at this over the last few weeks and months, haven't we, on Sunday mornings here at Regent. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus and then into Leviticus. And we've seen how God had the Israelites build, firstly, a, a portable temple as they, as they escaped from Egypt and as they were set free from slavery. And then uh, as they were, had the 40 years in the wilderness. And then eventually that, that portable temple was replaced or kind of, uh, fulfilled by a physical temple, a stone temple built there in Jerusalem. And in fact, parts of that temple are still there today and you can go visit it. You might have heard of the Wailing Wall. That's what is left of that temple that was built and was destroyed by the Romans in uh, 70 AD. But right at the very heart of the temple was a small room called the, the, the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And we've looked at this, haven't we? You've been here on Sundays. We've been looking at this for, for weeks. We even had it mocked up on the ground in here. Uh, which confused some people as there was black and yellow tape, we weren't sure where the fire exits were, um, and all that kind of stuff. But we've been looking at this in detail over the last few weeks. And in the holy place, that most holy place, there was this special kind of box, the Ark of the Covenant, nothing to do, by the way, with Noah's Ark, something completely different to that. But there was this special box, this special box, which was where God symbolically dwelt. It was a gold box, and it was overlaid with gold, and inside were the two tablets of the, the Ten Commandments on it. If you've seen the film Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you'll know what I'm talking about. It was a small wooden chest covered in gold, and it was topped with beautifully presented angelic beings. This is how Spielberg uh, kind of portrayed it in the movie. There should be a picture there of uh, Spielberg's movie. Here we go. There we go. Fantastic. Look at that. So that was how Spielberg portrayed the Ark of the Covenant. And if you look at the details in the Bible, he got it pretty much spot on. The most holy place which contained the Ark of the Covenant could only be entered into by one person once a year, the Jewish high priest, and only then once a year. And on that occasion, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as the Jews still call it, the sacrifice of an animal was symbolically to pay the price for the sins of the Jewish people throughout the last year. Its blood was taken by the high priest, sprinkled on the curtain that separated the most holy place, separated God from people. And then and only then could he go in through the curtain into the most holy place and then sprinkle the blood again on the Ark of the Covenant where, where God symbolically dwelt, where God's presence was most experienced on planet Earth. Now the priest's actions were hugely and, and highly symbolic. The message was clear. For our sin, justice must be done. Justice must be done and it must be seen to be done. 
A price has to be paid. A life has to be given. Blood has to be shed. And the only way to enter God's presence was through this curtain, and then and only then through the, the blood of a sacrifice. The curtain separated people from God. And what the priest did each year, and we've, we've been looking at this, haven't we, over the last few weeks, what the priest did each year was an enactment of what Jesus would actually do when he died on the cross and shed his own blood and give his own life as a sacrifice. And so this curtain in the temple that separated God from us symbolically was ripped into by God himself supernaturally. Nobody did it. This was a supernatural act. The moment Jesus cried out, it is finished. This, this curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Immediately after Jesus cried out, it is finished. Paid in full. Tetelestai. It's done. And God was demonstrating and announcing at the moment of his son's death that not only could we now have free access into God's presence, but in fact God was actually coming out through the curtain to meet with us. God was coming out with the real offer of coming to live in our lives. All because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the offer of coming to live in our lives. That is exciting, isn't it? God wants to live not in a stone temple, but he wants to live in our hearts. And that's what he was announcing as he tore the curtain in two from the top to the bottom. God loved us so much in the person of Jesus that he came to earth from heaven and paid the price for all our sins. He was punished instead of us. And when he'd taken the punishment for all of our sins, and when the job was done, he cried out, It is finished, paid in full, tetelestai. But that wasn't all that happened. Jesus didn't just die. That wasn't all that happened. Because if that was all that was happened, then actually Jesus' death would be utterly powerless to do anything for us. The Bible tells us that they took Jesus' body down from the cross. They laid his body to rest in a tomb with a boulder right across the entrance. But to prove that Jesus had finished the job of dealing with our sins and to prove that he really was who he said he was, three days later, he was raised from the dead by God the Father. The stone was rolled back and Jesus burst forth and Jesus was alive. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death is just another awful tragedy, another meaningless death on a cross. And the words that he spoke on the cross are just the pointless, meaningless ramblings of a dying man. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, his death was not a tragedy, but his death is a triumph. Because it's there on the cross that Jesus dealt with our sins. And the last words of Jesus, some of which we've looked at this morning, are not just the pointless ramblings of a dying man. Instead, they're the most powerful words ever uttered with huge significance, spoken by the Son of God, who by rising from the dead three days later, conquered death and sin and hell. It says this in the Bible, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. The tree, by the way, is one of the ways the Bible refers to the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So the resurrection of Jesus really happened physically in a real time and a real place. And we'll think more about that next Sunday on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. He was seen by up to 500 people at one time, the Bible says elsewhere. The resurrection of Jesus isn't an afterthought. It is essential. It's integral to, to the 
to what Jesus came to do. It proves that he was who he said he was. And it proves that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, paid in full, tetelestai, that he really had done it all. And that the price really had been fully and completely paid, never needing to be done again. I simply want to say two things this morning. Firstly, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I want to challenge you and encourage you to take that step this morning. Jesus has done it all. There never was anything that you could do. There's nothing that you and I can do to get right with God, to, to, to deal with our sins. But because of Jesus, because of his love for us, because of what he's done on the cross, because he cried out, it is finished and meant it, you can know that your sins have been dealt with by trusting in him this morning. And if you've never done that, if you've never taken that step of putting your trust in Jesus, then please give serious thought to that. Because one day we will all stand before Jesus, as that verse says, and we will give an answer for how we've dealt with Jesus. And depending on how we've responded to Jesus will depend on our eternal destiny. Those who've trusted in Jesus will spend eternity with him. Those who haven't will spend eternity in what the Bible calls hell. But I want to make a second point of application today, and that's to those of you who've already asked Jesus into your life, which is perhaps, you know, many of you here this morning. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant just that. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. There's nothing that you need to or can add to what Jesus has already done. See, Jesus is sufficient for you. Jesus is all sufficient for you. So often as Christians, we, we think that we have to somehow add to what Jesus did on the cross. But we kind of know, we sign up theologically, intellectually to the fact that Jesus has done it all. But then by our own behavior and by, because of our own insecurities and so on, we think that somehow we need to add to that. If I really want God to love me or to like me a bit more, I've got to do some nice stuff, some good stuff. I've got to kind of do good things. You know, for God to really like me, for God to really love me, I've got to go to church more. I've got to sign up for more things at church. I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to dress in a certain way. I've got to speak in a certain way. God might love me more if I, you know, if I just had seven quiet times in a row. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? If I could just do that, God would love me a bit more. Or if I told more people about him this week, maybe if I just shared my faith, then God would like me a bit more. If I gave some more money to the Lord's work, or if I got up earlier and, and, and prayed to him. Now, they're already good things to do. Don't get me wrong. Some of them are really, really important things to do, but doing them won't change how God feels about you. Doing any of those things won't make God love you any more than he already loves you. Getting up and praying for an hour in the morning won't make God love you anymore. And failing to get up for an hour in the morning won't make God love you any less. And that's for that we're really thankful, aren't we? Because <laughs> lots of us would struggle to do that, do struggle to do that. So there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more anymore. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. If you have trusted in Jesus this morning, then you have already been given all that Jesus died to make possible. The business of getting right with God, of being the righteousness of God, getting right with God is already done. It is finished, paid in full. There's nothing that you can do to add to that. There's nothing that you need to do to add to that. And no amount of doing good stuff, as good as it may be and as important as it may well be, we need to share our faith, we need to pray, we need to give, absolutely. But no amount of doing those things will make God love you anymore. God already loves you totally and utterly 
And if you want to see the proof of that, we look at Jesus on the cross and he says, this is how much I love you as his arms are flung wide and as he received those nails. This is how much I love you. It's done. It's paid. It's important that we do these good things because of our love for God, not because we're trying to earn God's acceptance. We're already accepted by God. If you are in Christ this morning, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you already have God's love because Jesus said it is finished. God thinks you're amazing. God loves you. God loves you with a passion. And you know what? As Joel told us a few weeks ago, God actually likes you as well. Lots of us struggle with that. Does God like me? He might not like everything you do, but he likes you. He loves you. Loves you with a passion. And any time we try to add to the simple call of God just to come to him through Jesus, we stray into legalism and religion. You know what? God really doesn't like religion. God really hates religion. Religion is all the kind of stuff that we invent that makes us feel better and makes us think that we can somehow approach God. Jesus wasn't a great fan of religion, and we see that when he was here on earth. Once we start inventing rules and, and kind of saying that we have to do certain things or whatever, we, we, we add to that simple gospel. By our very actions, we're saying that what Jesus did on the cross, it wasn't enough. And, and somehow that he hasn't really finished the business of getting right with God. I've got to add to that in some way. I've got to behave in certain ways to make God love you more than he already does. Well, today, my simple message is this. As we, as we go into Easter week, as we head towards Easter, you know, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and so on, you know, actually, as Christians, every, every day should be Good Friday. Every day should be Easter Sunday. Not just limit it to once a year. We're Easter people, aren't we? We're people who are in the, the, the experience of his death and resurrection every day. But as we maybe particularly focus this week, my message is to you this morning is start enjoying God. Start enjoying God's love. Instead of feeling that you're condemned, you're not condemned. You are free in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God loves you. He likes you. You're free. Remember, Jesus has finished the work. He did that so that you don't have to. You have been reconciled to God. You are God's friend. You are his child. You are a saint, a holy one. You are chosen in him before the earth was even created. You're accepted because Jesus paid the price in full. It is finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. Done. And as God looks at you this morning, hear this from God. He loves you. He really loves you. I know even as I say that, lots of you are struggling to believe that. But if the Bible says it's true, then it really is true. The task of the believer is to find out what is true and then choose to believe it. The Bible says that God loves you and he's proven his love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait until you were a good person before he died for you. Jesus died for you when you were still a sinner. So he loves you. You're accepted if you've trusted in him, if you're in Christ. And there's nothing you can do will ever change that fact. Let's just take a moment to be silent before God, to be silent before the cross. And in our silence to to come to the foot of the cross again and, and just bathe in the goodness of God's love, to receive God's love once again. Maybe this morning you know all this, but you know that you've kind of been drifting a little bit as a believer. You've been wandering away from God. You've been places you shouldn't. You've said and done and looked at things you shouldn't. Then just come back this morning and, and once again just receive and enjoy and bathe in God's love. He loves you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Come back to him and just enjoy that love of God once more.
And for those of you who don't know Jesus, maybe this morning is a time for you to come and for the very first time put your faith and trust in Jesus. To give up on your attempts to get right with God. To try and increase your favor or standing with him and instead to come and accept that. And for all of us this morning to rest and bathe in God's unconditional love that will never change and will never fade. Just bow our heads and just, just in these quiet moments before the cross, at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus cried out, it is finished, paid in full. Thank you that every sin that I've ever committed and ever will commit was dealt with by you, Lord Jesus, there for me on the cross. And thank you that that is true for every one of us here this morning who's put our faith and trust in you. I pray firstly this morning, Lord, for any who don't know you, who've never surrendered their lives to you. May this morning be the day when they give their lives to you and receive that forgiveness and receive the righteousness that God offers to be right with you. Lord, I pray for every one of us here this morning that we would know and Lord, we do know these things, but we, we forget them. The enemy comes and steals it from us. I just pray this morning, Lord, once again, for that real sense of that knowledge of your love. We are loved by you. Thank you for loving us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are chief, every one of us. Lord, we thank you that you loved us and gave yourself for us. We worship you this morning. We give you thanks. We praise you that the price is paid, paid in full. We can never add to it. We don't need to add to it. It's all done. And help us now to live lives that honor and glorify you because of what you've done for us, not because we're trying to earn more of it from you. We love you. We worship you this morning. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.